Brad, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. We're finally doing this. I felt like this is like an online dating relationship. We were texting back and forth and emailing for months, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, good to finally uh, finally make it happen. Before we talk about one of my favorite books of the year, The Wax Pack, you got to tell me about you, – you only uh, blurbed about it in the book. Tell me about the failed Iron Sheik book experiment. What happened with that? <laughs> well, that – do you have like three hours? <laughs> oh, it's a long story? <laughs> yeah. I mean it's like 15 years ago. Uh, I quit my job at a magazine to go try to write the. I, I had so I grew up loving the Iron Sheik. I had gotten to know him personally uh, when I was in college, and then I always thought his story would make for a great book because his story is. I mean, it is fascinating. His work as an amateur wrestler and a bodyguard for the Shah of Iran and all this stuff. And so uh, I quit my job to go move to the suburb of Atlanta where where he lives and spent a couple months working with him, hoping to write a book. And it just went like as, as well as my time in the wax pack and meeting with Don Carmen, my favorite player went this time around the iron Sheik situation went the opposite way. So it was, uh, yeah, he was just, you know, still struggling with drug addiction and just very volatile. So that, uh, that book never happened, but it was definitely a, a, a worthwhile life experience. Did you see the documentary on him? I did, The Sheik. Yeah, in fact, that, you know, that footage, that documentary that showed him when he was in a really bad place was pretty much right after I had been there in 2005. So I can say firsthand that that was all, you know, all very true where he was. Makes a lot of sense then why it didn't work because that beginning of that was difficult to watch, man. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I myself drove him to a crack hotel and yeah, saw him at his worst, and wow. it was it was crazy. All right, you know what? I'm glad why we didn't do the whole podcast about that because I've dealt with addiction before. I know the long road it can be on, so it didn't happen, but it could have been a great book, right? <laughs> yeah, know it's still sometimes I think about writing the story about trying to write the book. That might be just as interesting. Not blown smoke or anything, but this was one of the best sports books I've read in a long, long time. And I really mean that, man. This was incredible, The Wax Pack. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Can you do me yeah. favor, give a quick description on the highly rated book? Because for me to do it, it would take me forever. So give me a quick synopsis on the book for everybody listening. Well, pretty simple. Um, I grew up collecting baseball cards as a kid in the 80s. Had thousands of them, like so many of us. And had the idea to structure a book around a single pack of cards that had never been opened. So I got a pack of 86 tops cards and said, okay, whatever random guys are in this pack, these are the guys that I'm going to track down now and, and uh, find out you know, what happens to these players when they're done playing baseball. And it was a very simple premise, but it became a lot more. Um, I ended up deciding to drive, 11,341 miles all over the country in 30 states over seven weeks to find all these guys and um, got to spend a lot of time with each of them and um, got to do a lot of different things. So I, for example, uh, went to the zoo with one guy, worked out with one guy, <laughs> went to an art museum, went watched uh, old baseball games, got a hitting lesson. Um, so it was really like actively engaged with these former players. And really the book is not just about baseball. It's really about vulnerability, um, as these guys really were willing to let their guard down and open up to me about, um, things in their lives that were very personal about struggles with addiction, struggles with parents, 
father-son relationships, um, divorce, you know, all these different things that many of these former athletes had in common that they had to deal with once they were done playing. So it's, it's the story of, you know, their stories, it's my story, it's the road trip, it's baseball, it's, it's several different things. It's similar to the famous Glory of Their Times book by Lawrence Ritter. Did that serve as, a, as an influence or a template for you? You know, not really. Um, you know, I, I, I was just barely aware of that book. I think, if anything, the bigger influence was probably Boys of Summer. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I, you know, I, I I had been familiar with with uh, Boys of Summer, and but you know, really, I, I I wanted to write something that was just a not a typical sports book. You know, not the usual uh, just sort of straight story of a of a player's career but really trying to capture who they are as people you're not john Heyman. you don't have these insider connections knowing this wouldn't be an easy mission to pull off how'd you go about even getting the ball rolling with this yeah well that's uh i had to be very poor for many years teaching (laughs) part-time to give myself the time to work i mean of course no one was paying me to do this um and I went on the road trip without a book contract, no guarantee of anything. Um, I spent about a, a year before I left on the trip doing research, contacting the guys. I mean, you really have to turn into a kind of a detective slash stalker to, to find these guys and, you know, just looking in public records and writing them letters and, you know, every possible way I could think of to get in touch with them. And, and to their credit, for the most part, they were they were down to, to meet with me. I mean, a few of them. You know, I never got to speak with, but in in those chapters, I just kind of turn those chapters into a chance to talk about what it's like to try to track someone down and how challenging that can be. Was it difficult finding a publisher? Because this is like a unique book. Yeah, yeah, it was really hard. Uh, I got rejected 38 times. Uh, wow, did you really? Yeah, uh, over four years and cycled through two different agents and, and many times was like, Okay, you know, is this is this actually going to happen? Do I give up? Um, luckily, the University of Nebraska was was uh, willing to take a chance on me. And you know, going one for thirty nine is is terrible in baseball, but it's not bad in book publishing. So, <laughs> you know, once once you get that one, um, I knew you know I knew I had a chance to at least get it out there. I would have went to the publisher with the cover of the book because that was one of the coolest covers of a book. It's so eye-grabbing, and anyone over the age of 15 is like, oh, my God, that's an old pack of baseball cards. What a unique, <laughs> exactly. what a unique idea for a cover of the book, man. Yeah, well, I, th- I just think I always you know, had it in my head that the, the book resembled the pack or the pack resembled the book. And even down to a pack of cards would have 15 cards, and you know, a, cha- a book has about 15 chapters. It just seemed like a really convenient device. Uh, how was it doing the audiobook for this? Some people love it, some people hate it. Uh, I have a newfound respect for any voice actor after spending four days, six hours a day in a essentially a phone booth with the egg cartons on the wall. <laughs> uh, you know, un- unable to twitch because the uh, the microphone picks up every single little thing. Everything. Funny, I, was, <laughs> I was doing that right in when when COVID started, so. Uh, it was this surreal, like the world was, was burning and I was making an audiobook. And <laughs> it was just kind of a strange, strange time. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I wanted, I didn't know if I'd be able to because I usually hire a professional, you know, voice talent. And, uh, but since I'm such a big character in the book, I really wanted to do it myself if I could. 
thoughts? Because I think you and I are the same way that you collected cards because you like the players. You like collecting the cards. Thoughts on the sudden infatuation with cards, like how it just, you know, it just revamped himself and the prices people are paying for them. What are your thoughts on that? With like the resurgence of the cards now, exactly. Like Darren Ravel is tweeting that like a Mike Trout card is going for one point three million. And I'm like, wow. When I grew up, I just wanted that Griffey. I don't care what it was worth. <laughs> I just wanted the Griffey in a little plastic container. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's this, it's technically they're both baseball card bubbles or or crazes. But I think other than that, there's very little they have in common. I mean, back in our day, it was about getting to know the players. It was about you know, understanding baseball better, knowing the statistics. Now this just seems like this is a, a niche market for super rich people to um, show how rich they are. And, you know, that's not, to me, that's not very charming. I mean, I guess it's a, it's a collector's market, but it doesn't to me evoke the same, you know, connection to the game that we had with our baseball cards growing up. I don't want to, and we can't go player by player asking questions, because then who would want to read the book if we broke down everything? But I want to touch on a few players, but uh, but first, was there an overwhelming um, change to the game today that the players talked about? Because you were with like 12 of the players. Did they speak of a change in the game that like really resonated with them, or they spoke about a lot? Yeah, I think a lot of these guys, I mean, I think it's it sort of cuts two ways. One, they a lot of them had that classic um well you know the game isn't what it used to be and it was better when in our era and you know these players now they don't you know they don't really have it the same and i think i mean some of that is i think that older generation just not not keeping up with the the changes in the game with the analytics and everything and you know probably not giving enough credit to the way that that data has changed baseball um on the other hand, uh, I think that they are right in that I think these guys just enjoyed the game more than the players today in that, you know, they would talk about going out after a game with 15 of them to a bar and shutting the bar down and then getting to stay until three or four in the morning after the bar closed uh, and all hanging out together and never having to worry about a picture showing up on social media uh, so I think that it was just a different time. And I think the, the guys just really, you know, they almost feel bad for the players today who don't don't get to experience that as much. Let's talk about the non-headline players in the book right away, because you sit down with Rich Hebner. For me, that was one of the most interesting players. He played with Roberto Clemente and Willie Stargell in Forbes Field. How difficult is it? Because I, I interview a ton of people. I just had on Scott Bradley. He was, a, you know, a Yankee catcher for two years. And you don't mm-hmm. want to ask them about everyone else, but how difficult was it not to ask just about the old pirate stories when you have such a link to the past sitting in front of you? You know, to be honest, like I, I didn't really want to ask those questions because those guys get asked those questions all the time. Of course, okay. And um, I was really interested in in surprising them or catching them off guard with with stuff that they don't hear all the time because you have to remember Richie Hebner almost every interview he's ever done, someone's going to ask about Roberto Clemente, course, right? Or they're going to ask about the 71 pirates or, so he's going into the interview thinking, okay, I've just got to give my rehearsed answer. And, uh, but if I ask him about his brother, Dennis, or I ask him about, you know, trying to make the Cubs in 1986, like those are things he doesn't get asked. So he doesn't have a, a an answer waiting in the wings. And that was, you know, that was my approach in interviewing these guys was to, to get them to think about things that they often have not thought about or haven't haven't spoken about and to give the reader something different. You met with Gary Templeton and I knew he was good. 
I didn't even remember, or maybe I didn't know, that he was such a highly touted player, number one draft pick, all-star. We all know he was traded for Ozzie Smith. You asked him some uh, like some hard-hitting questions. Were you more confident being around these players further on in the journey? Because it seemed like you got a groove with him and later on in the book. Did you feel more confident as your travels went on? I think I did, but I was still you know, pretty scared shitless like, <laughs> when, I, when I was going to ask... Uh, you know, uh, Randy Reddy about his wife that had had a heart attack and, you know, asking follow up questions to Rick Sutcliffe about his father running out on him and, you know, Dwight Gooden's son and asking him what it was like to, you know, be in jail with his dad. I mean, these are like, you know, I don't care how comfortable you get. You don't get that comfortable. because These are still, these are still strangers, really. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I did get more confidence i guess when i had some good experiences early on but it was still hard to ask those questions you mentioned randy reddy and i mean this bro you had me laughing in the book you were on tinder in a bar with randy reddy is that like stuff surreal like when when i have um brad when i have like when i sit down with charles oakley you know him and i did an interview and talking to him about girls and this it's like it blows my mind like you're on tinder with a former baseball player was that wild <laughs> yeah yeah it was i mean it was very it was very surreal um <laughs> but he was a good sport. Like, you know, you have to read the read the room. Like, I don't think if I had busted out Tinder with Rance Mullenix, that would have gone over so well. But um, <laughs> you know, with with Randy Reddy, like, yeah, he would just. I just learned he was get, going through divorce, and he was just a really fun, easy to talk to guy. So, I, I thought he would, you know, kind of get a kick out of it. Uh, as you're on this journey, a couple players weren't able to. You couldn't snag an interview with them. After you knew you couldn't get one, did you ever think of abandoning the idea or, and I know you've probably been asked this and I, I hate to ask generic questions, how about sliding another player in there, another card in there? Ever thought of that? <laughs> no, I, man. I mean that because I'm like OCD and if I'm like, I got 12 guys but Carlton Fisk isn't going to do my thing, let me take out Carlton, Carlton Fisk and put in uh, Mackie Sasser. You know, like you didn't think yeah. of that at all? <laughs> I mean, I had that. I mean, I had very, very strong feelings about the ethics of preserving the integrity of the pack so i wouldn't be able to live with myself <laughs> really if i if i if i traded out a player yeah <laughs> no i just i couldn't sleep at night if i did that so uh no i was i was very much like i gotta you know i mean this card this case literally play the hand of cards that i'm dealt and uh and go with what i got and so that meant you know carlton fisk blowing me off seven different ways and i i had to find an eighth <laughs> way right Listen to me. We're friends now. Was Don Carmen really in the pack? He was your favorite player growing yeah, up, and all well, of a sudden, he's in the pack. Brad, come on, man. Right. This, that, that's a good hard hitting question, and uh, you know, I, I answered that with my footnote where uh, I said that you know, for those of you that think that is suspicious, I, I admitted that I did open up multiple packs, uh, but I didn't move cards between packs. Right. So I knew if I opened just one pack and called it a day, there was a good chance that I would have, you know, three guys that were dead or, you know, some, some guys that live, like if, if seven of the guys all lived in Indiana, that'd be a pretty boring book mm -hmm. for a road trip. So I knew I had to open more than one pack, but I, I wanted <laughs> to, it wasn't obviously having Don Carmen, my favorite player in the pack factored into my decision to go with that pack. You were in a lot of these dudes' homes. Did anything surprise you with either the amount of or lack of memorabilia? Um, yeah, I think it surprised me a little bit how little there was of that stuff. Um, and in general, it surprised me that a lot of these guys were not particularly interested in 
and talking about the old the old days or you know in terms of like the baseball stories and all that and i think uh, you know i think it's actually a, a sign that they're they're well adjusted in their post baseball lives that they're not trying to live live in the past you were relentless with Colton Fisk. We just talked about him twice. Again, you had me laughing. And, and dude, I try to read a book a week. So I try to change it from a hard, you know, a history book, true crime, to sports. When I read your book, it was just so different. And I, I was mad that it actually ended. You were, relentless, <laughs> you were relentless with Fisk, bro. You faked you were going to buy a house on a golf course. You showed up at random things. Um, you kind of stalked him. Deep down, did, yeah. it bo- did it bother you that you didn't, you didn't get the interview? Because as a reader, I'm like, I'm kind of glad you didn't because it showed that you – you went all the way to try to get it. You didn't get it. And that's real life. Yeah, no, it didn't bother me. Um, in fact, if I honestly to this day, I have no idea what I would have said if I had gotten, it. <laughs> you know? I didn't have much of a game plan because like I knew it wouldn't have been the best circumstances. So, uh, you know, I wasn't sure how I was going to play that. Um, and that was terrifying and nerve wracking, but no, I think the book is better that I didn't get to talk to everybody because, you know, I mean, every good story needs to have a narrative arc and it needs to have dramatic tension. And if everything goes well, you don't have any tension. You don't have any conflict. So uh, I think the book works better because I fail in several places. You know what they say? Perfect is the enemy of good. So I think it worked out pr- pretty well. Um, do you have that dis- uh, pack displayed anywhere? Did you frame it? Did you uh, get it mounted anywhere? Where is it displayed? Well, it's funny. uh I just moved to a new apartment in downtown Oakland. And as I was moving, I realized, oh man, like these cards are in just like in a little plastic case at the bottom of a box in storage. They're, they're not anything like they're not displayed. They're not taken care of. Like, but I, I realized, oh, I really, I'm not someone that loves to, you know, put stuff up on the wall, but I think I will create some kind of a display for the pack, the actual wax paper and the cards at some point. I hate having authors do this. Can you just tell me the Rick Sutcliffe story about the draft? Because I, I loved it. It was my favorite part. I actually highlighted it in my Kindle part. About the giraffe? Yeah, because he thought Army, Navy, that part. Oh, oh the giraffe. He's a giraffe. Like, no. <laughs> I, go to, I go to the zoo with Don Carmen and see yeah, yeah, giraffes. Yeah. But then in um, Rick Sutcliffe, yeah, so Rick Sutcliffe was, uh, I think it was when he would have been in, like, in, in high school and um, his – he, his his grandparents played a, a really pivotal role in his childhood, and he was like cleaning out a chicken coop or doing some manual labor in the yard. And his grandma calls him and she says, "Rick, you know you got drafted." And he's like, "Oh shit! Like, is it going to be the army? Is it going to be the navy?" And she and she's like, "No, it's the Los Angeles Dodgers." And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, stories like that, like that would just the way things happen now, you never have that nowadays, you know, with a, a high draft pick like that, thinking his first thought being he's going to go to the, the military. <laughs> I'll tell you what I really dug about this book. You as an author, you really opened up. It was therapeutic for you as a reader, I'm assuming. You talked about your ex, your relationship with your dad, your OCD, a lot of heavy stuff. Did you know all along you were going to sprinkle yourself into the book or did that just happen? Uh, I think early on I've I wanted to do that. I got a lot of pushback from that, um, from people that supposedly know better, you know, the agents and editors and all the gatekeepers in the publishing industry. And they said, Oh, this is part of why I got rejected so many times of, Oh, you know, we don't, you shouldn't put yourself in this story or make it more about baseball and not about you. But I had, you know, friends that were very supportive and, and, and other readers saying, 
you know, no, like this book really needs your character to be front and center. And I think it's because it, it, it makes the book hang together. You have, you have, you have to have some um, guide as you go from chapter to chapter, some connective tissue between the players. Otherwise it's just 14 individual stories. So that's kind of the role that my character plays in the book is to tie it all together. After the book came out, what was the reaction or reception from any of the players in the book? Did you hear anything from them? Or did anyone who didn't interview, and I don't want to be spoiler besides Fisk, did any of them reach out to you? No, none of the guys that I that I didn't meet with reached out to me, which I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm always sort of bracing myself for a call from Vince Coleman's lawyer or, you know, <laughs> Carlton Fisk's agent. But uh, the guys, the rest, you know, most of them that I spoke with and I kept in touch with, because I did the epilogue, you know, in 20... I said 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I caught up with all and said, okay, what happened in the last four years? And and so those guys, I sent them copies of the book and pretty much they all really liked it. Um, they seemed very, uh, you know, happy with the, with the, the final thing. And so uh, that made me happy that they, they seemed to enjoy it. The, the 86 Mets teams, you had the highs and lows of one. You have a dinner with your pops and Lee Mazzilli, which you have mm. to pinch yourself. And then the Doc Gooden stuff, which... It was frustrating. It was uh, tiresome. It was. It, it gave you all the emotions. You know, you felt sad for Doc. Then you got pissed at him. Then it was all over the place. Is that the chapter that people talk about the most with you? Um, no, I don't think so. I think um, I think probably the Templeton chapter gets talked about the most, okay. or the Fisk chapter, or the Carmen chapter. But the Gooden chapter, um, I think. Well, people like to talk about the Gooden chapter in the sense of the father son. Oh, sorry, that's Mazzilli. But the the, the Gooden chapter, um, I think people bring up because it's it's a fresh take on Gooden, right? It's like that was the challenge that I faced with writing about Doc was how do I say something new about a guy that's literally written three autobiographies? Um, and if I had actually gotten to spend time with him, it, the chapter may not even have been as good because I think what makes that chapter work is – is telling Doc Gooden Jr.'s story for the first time and really getting that out there. I'm really glad as an author and you guys, and you take so much pride in your work that you're not going to do a follow-up book because that magic cannot be duplicated. But on the other side, what's next for you writing-wise? <laughs> well, uh, no, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, I, ju- I mean, for me, the kind of writing that I do is dependent on being able to do that kind of reporting where I'm you know, traveling and I'm meeting with people. And so... You know, even still now, until COVID opens, you know, ends and we open up some more, um, it's really hard to do that kind of work. So I'm kind of just biding my time. And uh, future projects I have, a lot of them are in science because I'm a biology professor. Um, but I have a few sports things that I may I may do down the line. But it's still very early. Um, not exactly sure where I'm headed next. You mentioned you live in an apartment in Oakland. It was a little blurb here in the paper. Oakland moving? The A's going to be moving somewhere? <laughs> yeah, the uh oh man, I hope the I mean I would love the A's to stay, but it's uh it's a contentious thing right now. So I but I'm I'm happy where I am in Oakland. I hope the A's can can stay too. Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Sure. You and I are at a bar here in New York City. You want to impress everyone here. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them they would text you back? I'm definitely the iron cheek. Yes, that is okay. you know what? I'm gonna tell you something funny. No matter what baseball player I have on or, athlete, or a celebrity 
when I have old school wrestlers on, I just had Jake the Snake. People care more. Like, Jake the Snake, people go crazy for the old school wrestlers. <laughs> I, I Maybe it's just nostalgic or whatever, but anytime you bring up an old wrestler, people go crazy. Exactly. When was the last time you spoke to the Sheik? Uh, about two months ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he has. it's weird. He has two birthdays because he doesn't know which, <laughs> which birth document is legitimate. So he celebrates hmm. both March 15th and... Uh, September 9th and so I think it was March 15th that I last talked to him <laughs> you as a baseball fan if you could have witnessed one baseball event in history live what would it be Ooh, that's a question I've never been asked one baseball event live. okay so this is where I'm just you know just a weirdo is like I'm gonna say I would have loved to see Don Carmen's almost perfect game in 1986 when he lost the perfect game in the ninth inning and that's probably no one something no one would say nobody as a as a Don Carmen fan, like I would love to be there. Along this journey, I know you got the cards autographed. Did you ask for anything else autographed? Like Don Carmen, you asked for a jersey. Did you get anything special from him, anybody? No, and honestly, I felt even a little weird asking for the autograph on the card because, I mean, okay, so this is an example of how um, the book changed my view on fandom, which is I realized that like these guys really don't want to be treated any different than anyone else like so i think a lot of the attention actually makes them uncomfortable and they're actually they were actually more comfortable the less i talked to them as a fan or as somebody wow okay. looking for stories from baseball and so even the simple act of asking for an autograph in a way it it, it creates a power dynamic where you're elevating them above you and i don't necessarily think these guys like that attention um now that may be maybe the bigger stars like it more, maybe someone like Fisk, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know who have, who more, where more of their identity is related to their baseball stardom. But, but by and large, no, I, I didn't, I felt like it was kind of like intrusive or it was putting up more of a barrier for me to, to do things like that to Cause it would, it sort of would remind them of that they are, they are different from me. And the whole point of the book is to show how similar we are to baseball players. My wife wants to know, did you find love yet? I know I I, th- I had high hopes for some for you during the thing. You were very honest about your uh, <laughs> online dating experience. Are you single right yes. now? Yes, I'm still single. Yeah, still single, <laughs> still, still still online dating. Uh, but I'm happy. You know, I mean, that's also one of the points I make in the book is like, you know, for me, it's not about. At one time, I was like, oh, finding the one and all of that. And I think life's a lot more complicated than that. And you can be happy. You know on your own and you can be happy a lot of different ways so um i would say i'm i'm happily single Nine fifteen at night on a friday night you're not going out who's appointment watching for brad baseball wise who do you have to watch if they're on whether it be a pitcher or a hitter who you who you can't miss well i've been watching the phillies a lot this year and um i just you know i mean i think bryce harper every at bat is just a, a work of art you know oh, just that get watching that guy work is uh is just special because you're going to get nine pitches and you're going to get maximum effort. And even if he strikes out, it's worth watching. And I know you have Filipino favorite Filipino dish. Oh, uh, I got to go. My mom's uh, pancit probably is is pretty strong. Nagsaslita kaban ng Tagalog. Yeah, I only have my grandmother taught me the the dirty words. So oh, that's I, it. Come on, I'm my my wife's Filipino, so I'm, I've been learning Tagalog for the past year. So I want to finish it up. You don't speak any of it? No, I like I said, I, I know like just individual bad words, but not not phrases. So I 
I can't, I can't help you there. I'm sorry. Brad, just give the plug where everyone can follow you because you're a great follow on Twitter. Give everyone the plug where they can get this awesome book and everything, brother. Sure. Thank you. Uh, so I'm on Twitter at waxpackbook. And if you go to waxpackbook.com, you can uh, learn more and uh, see where to order it. So I really appreciate it. Listen, thank you for coming on. I'm telling you, usually whenever I finish a book, I try to have the author on. I was looking through my Kindle. I'm like, oh my God, I, ha- I haven't read your book and you haven't came on. Burl, I flew through the book. I loved it. Five stars on Goodreads, man. Thank you for doing this. It was so different. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, my friend. All right. Thank you. Have a great day, Brad. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.